Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 59. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Good day to you, Dr. Woolman. And hello to you, Christina. How are you? Just spectacular. Good. Because I know we're going to take a roller coaster today. We are. Yes. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide along with Christina as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, searching for ways towards optimal health. Today, we're pretty fortunate, Christina, to have uh, Tracy Harrison with us. And I would suggest that if those of you that don't know Tracy can go back to episode 53. Uh, to learn about her. She is our guide to proper nutrition and eating with healthy intentions. Today we're going to tour the uh, gastrointestinal tract. Uh, actually, Tracy has uh, been kind enough to agree to uh, three episodes with us, not including the first one. She did three more episodes, including today. So we decided we're going to really give everyone a small course in nutrition so that if they watch all of the shows, they'll really learn a lot. And we figured we would start today with uh, the first part, which is uh, the actual gastrointestinal tract. And this is an amazing system in our body, but it's also not only one of the important systems uh, to give us metabolism and nutrition and uh, helping the immune system many other things. But as we go through it, it's one of the most treacherous terrains on the planet. Although it starts out with uh, very nice, soft lips and sometimes seductive lips, behind those lips are hidden teeth that are capable of uh, crushing and grinding and ripping human flesh. Uh, I told you this is a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There's muscles in the, in the uh, whole tract that move food uh, through the whole tract, forcing it in one direction. There's an acid content in one part of the uh, intestinal tract that's one of the strongest acids on the planet. When you look at the inside terrain of the small intestine, it makes the Himalayas look almost like a desert. You have the large intestine, which is teeming with hundreds of species of bacteria and uh, is sometimes a toxic waste dump. And of course, you end with one of the most brilliant uh, sphincters, the anal sphincter, and we'll talk about that a little. So before we get into our tour with the one person that could take us through this tour safely, uh, why don't you tell everyone that's listening how to get in touch with us? Absolutely. Thank you, Glenn. So for those of you who are watching online, if you have a question or comment, just scroll down on your screen and there will be a box there if you would like to type that in and press submit. I will share it with our guests at that time. Or if you'd like to ask it personally, you are very welcome to dial into our conference line, which is 323-476-3672. And the number is 607 Three nine three pound. If that went by a little too fast for you, not to worry. It will be on the screen during the show. Thank you, Glenn. Hi, uh, you're welcome. And uh, I would like to reintroduce everyone and to anyone who hasn't met Tracy before on episode 53. Tracy Harrison is a health and wellness counselor uh, and teaches nutrition all over the world and does so many things. And I would like to introduce her right now. Welcome, Tracy. Hi, Glenn. Good morning. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, Tracy. You <laughs> Thank you, Tracy, for being back with us again. Yes, I'm excited. This is a, a wonderful outlet. I'm uh, delighted to be here. <laughs> yeah. And as you know, Tracy, I usually, as the medical guide, try and tell our viewers uh, the path we're going to take today. And... <laughs> The path is essentially from the mouth to the anus. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. I was laughing with you talking about the gnashing of teeth and the acid and the Himalayas. And wow, it's like a great movie. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's going to be great. That's the next ride at Disneyland. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do want to say, a really though, good that... Idea. <laughs> 
Tracy and I have sat down and we've talked about a number of things that we want to do over the next few sessions. Uh, but today we're going to start with anatomy and physiology, uh, the anatomy of the gastrointestinal tract and a little bit of how it works, and then maybe a little pathophysiology, which is uh, when things go wrong, what kind of things can go wrong. And finally today, uh, Tracy will give us some uh, secrets on how to keep it and ourselves uh, healthy. In a few of the future episodes, we're looking to talk about uh, reading labels, eating proper foods, how to choose your foods, what to do after certain types of surgical procedures, should we be taking probiotics and enzymes for digestion, a number of great topics. And just to let everyone know that before we actually put the shows together, if anyone does have some suggestions or questions for our two future shows, please let us know and we can add to that. So, Tracy. Uh, we're ready to go. Why don't we start? Uh, and I, I'm guessing you're going to start with the mouth, huh? Yes. The lips. Or what is it you said? The seductive lips. The seductive lips. <laughs> but look at what's behind them. <laughs> well, and and indeed, I um, I do think it's a it's a fascinating tour, as you said, from stem to stern, from from lips to uh, to anus. I think it's important for all of us to understand this magical. Um, system in the body that we have that allows us to hopefully transform food into actual nourishment. Because as you'll quickly see, the act of putting something in your mouth does not necessarily mean that all of the wonderful nutrition and energy in that food is actually going to make it into the cells of your heart or your liver or your left big toe. Um, it's really through the miracle of the GI tract that that happens. And uh, certainly when uh, I thought I might say a little bit about even what happens before the lips, uh, when it starts to be about lunchtime and someone walks by with some food and you smell it and or you see it and the digestive tract starts to rev up into action in anticipation of food. And when we, when we put food um, in, in our presence in some way, uh, one of the first things people start to feel is their mouth watering. And you, you start to feel more saliva in your mouth. And certainly once you actually put food in your mouth and begin to chew, uh, more saliva comes out. And it may seem that saliva is really just to lubricate food so that it slides down the throat, down the esophagus, which it does. But actually, many folks don't realize that digestion begins in the mouth carbohydrate foods that we might have as part of our meal, uh, a piece of bread or some carrots or an apple. Uh, digestion of carbohydrate foods begins in the mouth. Uh, in fact, saliva is uh, a short form of the full name of that liquid, which is salivary amylase. And amylase is a digestive enzyme. So your carbohydrate foods begin to be broken down in the mouth. When you, when you swallow food and it travels down the long tube of esophagus down into the actual stomach, which is uh, right in the center of the torso, we begin the process of digesting other foods, uh, in particular protein. I, I like to call the stomach the body's blender. And this <laughs> is where the, the really caustic acid comes out. And, and Glenn, I loved what you said. Uh, hydrochloric acid in the stomach is strong enough that if it, if it were outside of your body and you were to put a drop of it on your arm, it would actually very quickly burn you, very rapidly, burn straight through your skin into your tissue. Um, in, a, in a typical healthy gut, the, the pH of that, um, that acid is really around uh, 1.5 between 1 and 1.5, very, very caustic, acidic, totally would strip the pain off your desk. <sighs> and, uh, and we need that. We need that in order to have good, efficient digestion because in the stomach primarily is where our protein gets broken down. So when we put a piece of chicken in our mouth and chew it up and swallow it, um, that's a very coarse food. Proteins are very long chains of amino acids, usually hundreds and hundreds of them. And, and we can't absorb these big, huge chains of food. We have to break those chains down into smaller chains and smaller chains and smaller chains. And eventually, 
little individual amino acids. And we talked about in the last session as amino acids is really the pearls on the necklace of proteins. And, and that's what our body needs from protein. But we need that strong acid to, uh, to break down that protein. And we're going to come back to that because uh, I, I, I am concerned about uh, a lot of impressions that folks have around stomach acid that somehow it's bad. And uh, I do worry about the wide, wide, widespread use of uh, antacid, antiacid medications. Um, but in a good, healthy gut, we have nice, strong acid that's breaking down uh, the, the protein. And, and for the most part, um, carbohydrates and fats are kind of hanging out in the stomach. They, they get broken down a little bit, but not very much. Um, the, the attention to the carbohydrates again, and then the fats really comes into play after food leaves the stomach. Uh, food tends to spend anywhere from, now obviously depending on the size of your meal, but spends anywhere from 30 minutes to about three hours, three, three and a half hours in your stomach being blended and broken down. And in a, in a good, healthy body, you can sometimes feel the churning of your stomach. It's like if you're making a batch of cookies and you have a mixing bowl and you put all the ingredients in and you're stirring it. Like you said, Glenn, we have all these muscles um, uh, outside the wall of our stomach that are really literally churning, trying to, to break down our food into smaller and smaller bits. And then the, um, the food leaves the stomach and begins to flow down into the wonderful small intestines. Uh, this is really the site of absorption. And digestion is the breaking down of food, but the absorption is where it really matters. Can we absorb it out of the GI tract and actually get the nutrients into our body where our cells can take advantage of it. But food passes from um, the stomach through uh, another valve called the pylorus and goes into the small intestines. And interestingly enough, we digest protein in our stomach in a very acidic environment, very low pH, and we need that for uh, kind of a rip and tear sort of approach. But in the small intestines, we need an alkaline environment. And the, the body secretes all sorts of hormones that um, stimulate a gland in the GI tract called the pancreas, which is a, looks like a, a little bean pod, and it sits right behind the stomach. And this pancreas is amazing because it secretes a lot of really critical substances that we would die without um, pretty rapidly, actually. And one of the things that the pancreas secretes is something called bicarbonate. And acid is the stomach acid, the hydrochloric acid is very acidic. Bicarbonate is very alkaline. And so our, our GI tract has an amazing ability to swing the pH of our, of our juices, of our digestion, our, our semi-digested food, pretty wildly uh, in pursuit of uh, optimal digestion. But once food slithers out of the stomach and into the intestines, we have the, the bicarbonate creating a more alkaline environment. And the pancreas also secretes many, many, many different types of digestive enzymes. And these enzymes are literally like little Pac-Men that are coming along and breaking down chunks of food into smaller and smaller bits. And it's chomping at the protein and breaking it down. It's really chomping at those carbohydrates. Um, and it also starts chomping out the fats, breaking down the, the larger clumps of fat into smaller um, smaller bits, but we get this incredible soup of hormones and enzymes and food and water going on in our intestines. Um, it, it literally it is a soup where everything's being well blended, um, but we have to add to that something really, really critical for digestion of fats called bile. Um, this is where the liver and the gallbladder come into play. Uh, our liver is the largest metabolic organ. And uh, it has an, a huge um, number of roles in keeping us healthy, but one of them is to produce a really critical substance called bile. And bile passes from the liver down into this little sac. And it actually is a little sac. It looks like a sac. 
um, called the gallbladder. And the gallbladder holds a repository of bile. And what happens literally is when you chew your food and you swallow it and it goes through the stomach and it starts coming out of the stomach, there's a hormone in the small intestines that says, oh, now it's our turn. And it stimulates the gallbladder to go and kick out all of its bile into the intestines to help us digest fats. If we don't have bile, we cannot digest fats. And that's really critical because despite a lot of common health myths that somehow fats are bad, um, we have to have fats to, to live. Um, the, the outer membrane of every single one of our cells in our body is made of fats and cholesterol. And so the body cannot heal itself, cannot regenerate new cells and turn over old cells without fats. So um, despite a, a lot of beliefs otherwise, the ability to process bile is really important. Um, the liver is critical there, and it is very important to try and hold on to our gallbladders because we certainly digest fats better if we have a little sack of bile rather than a slow little drip of bile from the liver. But, but bile helps to emulsify fats. Um, that is to make it so that it can blend with water. You know, when you make salad dressing and you mix oil and vinegar and you shake it up, unless you put something in there to emulsify it, the, the oil and the vinegar don't mix, right? Well, it's the same thing in your gut. You have to have bile in order to get them to blend. And, and so we've, we're adding bile to the soup and it's helping to um, make it so that the enzymes can do their work on breaking down fats. But we've got this soup that's passing through this incredibly long garden hose-like tube. Um, the small intestines are several feet long. Um, depending on the, the body, they might be uh, 12 to 17 feet long. And this is where food gets broken down and broken down and broken down and broken down until there are little bitty bits that are small enough to fit into these really tiny crevices in between um, the little villi projections on the small intestines, which is where food passes out of the GI tract and into our blood supply or into our lymph in the case of fats. Um, but that's a, there's a frontier there of getting out of the GI tract where food is being broken down, but it's not helping us yet. We're not getting nourishment from it yet. We can't get energy yet. And it passes into, through that precious lining of the small intestines and into the blood supply or the lymph, where it goes into circulation and can actually do some good. So the, the small intestine is really critical. And um, this is where we absorb specific nutrients vitamin A, magnesium, iron, vitamin B6. It's also where we pick up macronutrients. We absorb uh, a little bit of monounsaturated fat. We absorb a little bit of a certain amino acids from our chicken. We absorb uh, glucose, say, from, um, uh, from the, the bread that we had as part of our meal. Or we absorb fructose from the, the apple that we had. Uh, food has to be broken down to incredibly small-scale molecular bits in order to be absorbed. And in reality, if you don't have efficient digestion, you can't absorb your food. Uh, we're not going to thrive that way. What we'll have is a lot of waste, if you will, being passed along to the lower part of the GI tract. Um, so we're really dependent in particular on what happens in the small intestines. But what we don't absorb, and certainly the waste from our food, uh, in particular fiber, which the body is not designed to, the human body is not designed to digest. Uh, cows can. Uh, there are a lot of animals that actively digest uh, cellulose and other types of fibers for, for nourishment. But we don't. Um, but the, the benefit of fiber to the diet is really about helping to keep our small intestines squeaky clean and healthy and also nourishing the bacteria in our gut. And I'm going to come back to that in a second. But um, the waste that we have left over, whatever we didn't absorb, water, fiber, those things pass down into the large intestines or what we might call the colon, which is uh, really um, the body's garbage can. Uh, we produce a tremendous amount of waste uh, in, our, in our body, whether it's 
things, toxins we absorbed, poisons, things that we don't want that we want to get rid of, or even just metabolic waste, you know, the leftover stuff from food prep, um, from the, our metabolism in our body. All of that's mobilized in the colon and packed into a stool. Um, which um, forms in the the large intestines or the colon and is moved along and and made a little larger over time. And then hopefully, if you have a nice healthy body, at least once a day, maybe more often, we expel the stool um, through our rectum and then through our anus as the body's way of taking out the trash, if you will. Uh, So the GI tract from stem to stern is an incredibly complex and sophisticated system designed to start with whole food, but take us down to something that can actually nourish all of the different cells in our body. Uh, And I think a couple of things that I haven't mentioned is um, the presence of microbes. And we're going to talk a a lot about those um, today, but also in future sessions Most people are shocked to find out that in their GI tract, they have literally hundreds of trillions of microbes. Uh, We've learned from clinical study that in the average person, it's anywhere from uh, 400 to 1,000 different species. There's literally a wild kingdom down there. It's pounds of microbes, pounds of bugs. And and while that may sound a little uh, squeamish (laughs) to acknowledge uh, we, our health is dependent on those microbes. They flourish based on how we feed them or not. And they do an, a number of critical tasks. They, they protect the absorption surface in our small intestines. In some cases, they make vitamins. Uh, the microbes in our gut make vitamin B12. They make vitamin K. They help to mobilize toxins and bind with them so that we make sure that toxins are excreted out of the body in our stool rather than reabsorbed. They calm our immune system. Um, We haven't even gotten to the fact that over two-thirds of our immune system lives in our GI tract because that's really the, the place where an awful lot of foreign invaders could potentially come in the door. And so in addition to this, digestive soup that we're trying to deal with. We've also got a lot of microbes trying to flourish and we've got an immune system trying to separate friend from foe amongst our food. It's an incredibly rich and complex frontier of activity in order to keep us well and nourish us, but also protect us from potentially harmful things. So let me stop there, Glenn, and if I've, uh, maybe you can ask some questions in terms of filling in some key details, but uh, it's an amazing part of the body, and I find one that very often people don't know much about. Yeah, and I think that's the reason we want to do this today. It's very important, and I think the way that you just described it will make it very easy for uh, us to have an understanding about it. Uh, it's easy. It's easy for me to add a number of parts because it is so complex. And every little part of it that you mentioned, there's there's another whole episode that we could talk about. Uh, but let's go let's go back and start over again. Now that we have a little bit of the anatomy and the and a little bit of the physiology, and let's talk about uh, things a little more physiology and maybe a little pathophysiology. Uh, some of the things that can go wrong. Remember, uh, everyone, that I always talk about the fact that we're really made up of cells, different types of cells, and you have cells in the, in the tissues of the lips, different cells in the tongue, part, cells in the salivary glands, cells in the esophagus, different types of cells in the stomach producing things in the, in the small and large intestines, uh, in the liver, in the gallbladder, in the pancreas, everywhere. They're all cells, and every cell has the ability to have uh, its appropriate physiology do the things that it's supposed to do, but every one of them has the ability to go wrong, be it, <laughs> be it, be it from an inflammation, an attack by a foreign body, an infection, uh, a mutation into a cancerous lesion, uh, and many things. And this is where we... Uh, this is where we in medicine spend most of our time waiting for things to go wrong and then try and fix them. So let's let's go back a little bit and maybe you could talk to us a little bit about some of the things. Let's start with the lips. 
and see if there's anything you want to tell us about that. And then we'll go, we'll, I'll move you along through the tract again, and we'll have more discussions about a few different things. And maybe we can start looking at the pathophysiology. And then after we do that, we're going to take another tour so that people can uh, remember it even more clearly. And we'll talk about things that you can suggest to keep each of these areas as healthy as possible. So why don't you take us uh, starting again with the lips and tell us about that and anything there you want to talk about. I don't know about the the lips in particular, um, other than I think before food crosses your lips, <laughs> it's a wonderful opportunity to stop and think about the food choices we make and whether something is really going to be nourishing. Um we, we make a lot of choices each day about what we put in our mouths and whether something is really more of a food or a food-like substance. Um, but uh, one thing I definitely want to talk about is uh, chewing. I think uh, chewing in the mouth is extremely important because just like you said, we've got these teeth, which are incredibly strong. Uh, and different teeth have different functions in terms of whether they are cutters and shredders or whether they are chompers, you know, mashers in the back. I don't have all the right dental terms for these. I apologize. But um, chewing is an incredibly healthy act. It's actually the only part of the entire digestive tract that is voluntary. And uh, in many cases, people have gastrointestinal upset or dysfunction or even disease in part because we don't chew our food. Um, if you if you put in a mouthful of food and you just chew it a couple of times and kind of gulp it down or, or chase it down with a little water, you leave your GI tract to deal with um, a much bigger task than if we had chewed our food more thoroughly. Um, so I'm a big fan of chewing. It's not a very um, sexy topic, but it's really critical to chew your food thoroughly. Um, an, an interesting enticement for that is because saliva is a digestive enzyme and it's working on carbohydrates. The longer you chew carbohydrate food, the sweeter it tastes. Uh, I, I've had a number of clients who were shocked to, to test this out on their own and to find it's true. Uh, it's a reward for chewing food very thoroughly. Uh, even if you put um, something like a, uh, a piece of apple or a couple of walnuts in your mouth, the longer you chew them, you'll be amazed at how much uh, sweetness comes out. And, and that's because the saliva is doing its job. It's breaking the food down. It's isolating those individual sugars in the food, and you're tasting them. So, in, sorry, go no, ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to, I was going to say that uh, I like to think the same way that you do, but that before the food comes in, we should always honor food and uh, mm -hmm. honor the process. And not only that, but you talk about the foods when when they're prepared in the different ways that we prepare foods. Sometimes. We prepare them in a way that actually destroys some of the enzymes that are in the food that help it to digest so that the body needs to do even more work. And in chewing, uh, I always tell my clients that they should actually juice their food in their mouth. And by doing that, it does a number of things. One, it breaks it down in the ways that you said, but also by, by taking a little longer to chew it also takes care of your appetite in a different way. Many times we stuff things into ourselves and it takes about 20 minutes of eating before we start feeling full. But by that time, many of us that eat on the run and eat fast foods uh, have really stuffed ourselves so that by taking your time and chewing carefully, you actually can uh, make yourself satiated a little sooner and therefore tending not to eat quite as much, which may be healthier in many cases. I also wanted to mention uh, a little interesting fact that I thought about the mouth or that I read about the mouth is that when you put hot food into the mouth, it cools it down. And when you put cold food into the mouth, it warms it up. So it always makes it a very nice temperature. Uh, and then we could talk about taste for a few minutes on the actual tongue that I think would be interesting. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about the, the different tastes that we have? 
Sure, absolutely. That's a, a great point. Uh, but first of all, I just really want to uh, echo what you said about satiety. Um, it's uh, I, I like to say that you know if you if you have one little square of dark chocolate, you can either get five seconds or a whole minute of pleasure out of that, depending on how long you chew it. Um, and, and I find a lot of people struggle with overeating because we're so quick to wolf it down. When to your point, the pleasurable part of eating is while it's in the mouth um, for the delicious taste. And, and we actually have taste buds on our tongue for a wide variety of different uh, flavors. And um, uh, it's one of the reasons why meals generally are more satisfying if they involve a wide array of flavors. It gives us the pleasure of uh, a little bit of sweet, a little bit of sour, a little bit of savory, a little bit of salty. Um, but we have um, we have six different taste centers on our tongue. Anything from uh, sweet, which is right on the uh, um, several places, but primarily right on the tip of the tongue, or bitter, uh, which is quite a bit further back. But they're literally physical places on the tongue where you sense these things and and you get the connection with them. Uh, and interestingly enough, we know that that actually helps to trigger the digestive system to anticipate the variety of foods that you will be bringing in, uh, which I find fascinating. Uh, the body is so intelligent. Um, but generally, I find folks are more satisfied with their meals and maybe eating a more appropriate quantity of food if there's a rich variety of flavors. Uh, we were talking before the, the show started about the traditional use of uh, sour type agents along with a meal in order to help stimulate digestive enzymes, uh, which we know happens um, around the world. Cultures have traditionally used a wide variety of fermented or cultured or sour foods to aid digestion, whether it's um, a little bit of uh, sauerkraut uh, or a little bit of kimchi um, or a little bit of yogurt. Uh, there are cultures all over the world, whether it's Korean or Indian, Mexican, all sorts of different things. Um, so having that little bit of sour actually will stimulate the secretion of enzymes. And it's one of the reasons why when you taste something sour, you feel a flood of saliva come out because the body is responding to that. Um, so um, it's fun to explore the different taste sensations. But I, I do find that Lots of times, one of the reasons why people can eat a, a huge meal and afterward feel like, I just need something sweet. Even if they had a huge meal and they're, they're full, they feel physically full. Many times, if our meal was entirely sa uh, savory and we didn't have any sweetness in the meal, it, it makes us crave dessert or something sweet after the meal when we may not actually want more volume. There's just a, a part of our taste buds that hasn't been satisfied. And so we want that. We want that sense of completion. And uh, it's, I think it's a, a great um, reason why including a little bit of fruit or a little bit of sweeter vegetable, like a sweet potato or a red pepper, these types of things in your meal can help us to find greater satiety in our main course and then a lot less likely to turn to sweets after the meal. Uh, except I think we always need sweets after a meal, although it's probably not good, and we'll find out later on. And I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to mention, no one should ever have just one little square of chocolate. <laughs> but that, that's a personal bias. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so if we're we've gone uh, through the lips and the tongue and uh, the mouth, and now we're going into the pharynx and the esophagus. Anything you want to talk to us about there? It's really a tube. A peristalsis does start uh, in the esophagus. It's a long tube that takes food from our mouth down to our stomach. And uh, it is of a certain fixed size as a way of encouraging us to chew our food thoroughly. Um, many people have had the sensation, I'm sure, of trying to swallow a bite that was too big, and the body kicks it back up, kicks it back up into your mouth to keep chewing, because you have that, that little paranoid feeling of, uh, I might be choking. Um, but it, uh, it guides the food 
um, and the, the peristaltic waves of muscle action helps to move it along to really take food down into the uh, stomach. But uh, we unfortunately have a, a huge incidence of issue with the esophagus, primarily in the form of acid reflux. And I think that's a very important topic to, to focus on. Acid reflux is what happens when stomach acid, which is supposed to stay in the stomach, burbles up into the esophagus. We have this really precious little sphincter, which works a little bit like a valve. A sphincter is um, a very muscular joint um, that should has the ability to clamp or open or clamp or open. It's not actually a flap. Um, but it can clamp tightly enough so that nothing can get in or out. And the esophageal sphincter is designed to help food to go down and then close so that the churning of the stomach and the, the movement with the acid happens in the stomach and doesn't burble back up into the esophagus. Um, we get uh, all sorts of potential dangers from chronic acid reflux because, well, first of all, most people know it hurts. You know, when you have acid coming up into the esophagus, it hurts not because there is too much acid. That is a huge myth. When you have acid reflux, it does not mean you have too much acid. In fact, it's much more likely an indication that you may not have enough acid. But it's simply this sensation of acid being in the wrong place. I mentioned earlier that our stomach juices with all that hydrochloric acid are extremely acidic. Well, the lining of our stomach is protected. The, those, those cells, as you described, that tissue is, is very well protected by a nice thick mucus layer that keeps those cells from being burned or injured by that acid. But the problem is that if the acid burbles up into our esophagus, there's no protective coating on our esophagus. So it hurts, just like it would hurt if acid were to go on your arm, uh, which doesn't have that mucus layer. So acid reflux is simply an indication of stomach acid being in the wrong place. Doesn't mean you have too much. It just means it's in the wrong place. Uh, and, and chronic acid reflux with the, the acid coming up into the esophagus can actually damage the tissue, the damage the cells in the lining of the esophagus and cause all sorts of problems, um, uh, primarily uh, Barrett's esophagus is a fascinating adaptation of the body uh, when you've had acid reflux so long um, that there's been damage to the cells. What happens is the lining of the esophagus, those cells start to mutate and try to become stomach cells, which I, I think is so fascinating around the wisdom of the body. Um, you can almost imagine the cells thinking, well, I wasn't designed to accommodate a lot of acid, but apparently I'm supposed to now. So let me morph into a stomach cell. Really amazing to me, but um, it's not good in the sense of what it does is it creates cellular dysfunction and communication in the esophagus. Um, Barrett's can easily lead to esophageal cancer. Um, so acid reflux is not to be taken lightly, but it, uh, it is an epidemic. And um, even though our esophagus is uh, really just a tube that's trying to pass food along. It is really vulnerable to those stomach juices if they jump up and they're in the wrong place. And I might add one other part to that is that Please. if when someone is asleep and they're more in a recumbent position, sometimes if they do have that problem with acid reflux, it can actually go up all the way to the top of the tube of the esophagus and spill over into the trachea and down into the uh, lungs. And one of the things that we see as a first indicator, because a lot of times people don't know that they have this reflux uh, because it's, it's happening at night, uh, one of the things that we see, surprisingly, is people come in with a cough that they can't understand. And that's because the the lungs are getting irritated or the upper respiratory tract is getting irritated. So yes, esophageal reflux and uh, Barrett's esophagitis, very important. All right. Well, we've talked about uh, the esophagus. We're moving and we've mentioned the stomach. Is there anything else you want to mention about the stomach thinking about that? 
Well, the, um, if the esophageal sphincter works well, if it clamps, and we'll talk in a moment about how to help it do that, but if it, it clamps well, then when, when food is introduced into the stomach, um, we have cells in the lining of the stomach that are producing a, a variety of things, but in particular, um, we have a type of cells called parietal cells, which produce this hydrochloric acid. And, and again, it's the, the body's blender. Uh, I, I talk to my clients a lot about the importance of not overloading your blender, which if you've done before and turned it on, you know what happens. <laughs> and it blows the top of the blender off. Or, you know, if you were to try and make a, make a batch of cookies in a coffee cup, you'd have a really hard time stirring it and things would be spilling over the sides. One of the biggest drivers for acid reflux, at, at least in American society today, is people trying to eat too much in one sitting. Um, the stomach is designed to expand, which is pretty amazing. Uh, uh, left on its own, it's a, a pouch that's not bigger than your two fists put together, but it's capable of expanding to many times that size. But in order to have good digestion, you want there to be plenty of breathing room in your stomach for oxygen and for all of the digestive juices and all of that acid to blend well with your food so that things are broken down. If you eat to a point of feeling super full, you make it very hard for your stomach to do a good job digesting food. And many people find that simply by eating smaller meals, um, that a lot of acid reflux either improves or actually goes away. If you if you put the too much food in there and it's churning and carbohydrates uh, in the stomach while they're waiting their turn to be digested can actually start to ferment and um, they give off uh, gas. Um, and that's what causes belching, what causes burping, is blow the gas that's in the stomach blowing open the esophageal sphincter and sending gas back up to our mouth, um, which we experience as a burp. And um, so uh, doing that every once in a while is perfectly normal. Um, but when people do it chronically, it's usually an indication that they're either trying to consume too much in, in one sitting and the body doesn't have the ability to contain it all, or it may mean that um, they don't have enough uh, stomach acid in order to effectively digest their foods, especially a, a large serving of animal protein, which is very common in the American diet. So in, in particular for the stomach, our, our body needs us to try and not to eat, not eat too much at once. Um, there's, there's actually a, maybe you know the name for it. There's a, a Japanese practice of only eating till you're about 80% full. There's a, a, a neat phrase for that. But I think that's great wisdom of really eating to a point of satiety, but not fullness to allow your body to have room to digest and to churn and to effectively break down our food. Let's move to the small intestine. Anything you want to talk to us about there in terms of the pathology or? Um, well, I think um, the, the, the primary thing that uh, I think is of note about the, um, the small intestines is that we end up at times struggling to digest or I should say struggling to absorb our food because we eat things or we put things in our mouth that break down or cause damage to that precious intestinal lining, to those little villi projections, which is the point of nutrient absorption when food is small enough to really fit down in between those villi and be absorbed. And one of the most common things that people do is take a lot of over-the-counter painkillers. And, and I'm sure you could talk about this at length, Glenn, but we have an impression that um, ibuprofen and acetaminophen and aspirin and that all of these medications, because they're available over the counter, are innocuous uh, and they don't really have any side effects to the body. Uh, I certainly have had plenty of clients who will take a couple of Advil just in case they might have aches and pains during the day. Um, but but while these medications work, and I think they're wonderful to have as triage when we have intolerable pain, they are really quite toxic to the lining of the intestines. And I really recommend that folks minimize their use to when it's absolutely critical because they, they literally break down 
the the villi and the, that protective mucus layer in our intestines. And if there's too much wear and tear there, the body will not absorb nutrients well. Uh, what a lot of folks don't realize is that specific nutrients are absorbed in specific places in, in the small intestines. Uh, a good example is uh, iron, for example. The mineral iron is really important for a number of reasons. Well, there's a very specific place in the small intestines in our jejunum which is the, the middle segment of the small intestines, a very specific physical place where iron is absorbed. And if that place has too much wear and tear, even though the rest of the small intestines may be free and clear, we are simply not going to absorb iron very well at all because its place of absorption is damaged. And, and this is where I think medications play a role um, and also trying to eat good, clean food. Uh, when we eat food that has a lot of chemical ingredients, uh, artificial colors, artificial sweeteners, artificial flavors, uh, non-organic food that has pesticides in it, these are all things that over time cause wear and tear to the small intestines and impair our ability to absorb nutrients and, and also, by the way, do a, a real whammy on the vitality of those protective um, bacteria. Um, they, uh, bacteria certainly don't thrive with chemicals as a diet. Um, they don't thrive with medications as a diet. What they thrive on is good, healthy, natural carbohydrate foods and the fiber that comes with them. The, the good microbes that we want to encourage, they eat vegetable fiber. They eat the leftovers from broccoli or the leftovers from carrots or the leftovers from an apple or the leftovers from a serving of quinoa. Um, whole grain or almonds, um, not a Twinkie <laughs> and um, not, you know, not a double dose of Advil because I feel nauseous. I have a hangover and I don't really feel like eating um, those kinds of things. Every once in a while, the body bounces back from. But when we have a lifestyle that's putting in wear and tear for the intestines and then kind of a, a punch in the stomach to those protective microbes, we're eventually asking for some type of gastrointestinal disease. And those are the kinds of things that don't tend to occur after three or four months of non-supportive behavior. It's the kind of thing that slowly builds up over years and, and, and contributes to um, all sorts of things like um, IBS or inflammatory bowel disease. I mean, there's all sorts of things that um, people can struggle with that really haven't occurred overnight. They are the result of, the outcome of suboptimal choices over years. Let me, uh, thank you for that. That was very good. Let me clarify for a few people, not really clarify, but add to the conversation about the small and large intestine. The, the reason one is called small and one is called large it has to do with the internal diameter the small intestine has a smaller diameter, although it's much longer. As, as Tracy said before, it could be up to 22 to 25 feet long. And the large intestine uh, is, has a, a wider diameter, but it's much shorter. It's only about, could be 8 to 10 to 12 feet long. The, the other misconception sometimes that people have is that the large intestine is really, well, let me go back to the small intestine. The small intestine has three parts to it. The first part is the part that receives food from the stomach, and that's the duodenum or the duodenum. The middle part that you mentioned receiving uh, the second part is the jejunum, and the final part is the ileum. And the ileum uh, connects to the large intestine at the ileocecal valve, where the appendix usually uh, lies. The large intestine is actually made up of three parts. It's made up of something called the cecum, the colon, and the rectum. And the colon within that large intestine is made up of uh, a number of parts. It's made up of the ascending colon, the transverse colon, the descending colon, and the sigmoid colon. So those are just a few little actual anatomical points for people as they're looking up things maybe to try and get another understanding to supplement uh, this talk. 
as we go through, uh, is there anything you want to say about the large intestine before we go to some healthy things in the last few moments uh, that can be done? I, I just want to say one thing, and, and to your point, we could talk a lot about it. Um, I think it's really important that people realize that constipation and diarrhea are not illnesses. They are symptoms of uh, some sort of upset in the GI tract. And uh, in, in the sense that I said, a bowel movement is really the body taking out its trash. I really encourage people not to be constipated. I'm amazed at the number of people, Glenn, who think regularity in terms of a bowel movement is having one once or twice a week. Um, but I think in particular in modern society today, where our body is trying to get rid of a lot of toxins on a regular basis, one of the major causes or, or contributors to colon cancer or other damage in the colon is the fact that we leave the waste, the trash sitting around too long in our intestines. And what most people don't realize is that if it sits there too long, not only does it begin to putrefy and, and cause all sorts of craziness with the microbes down there, but the body actually says, okay, you're not going to take out the trash. I'll absorb it again. And it starts reabsorbing the trash that we didn't take out. So I think it's very important not to be constipated. Uh, one of the biggest, biggest reasons that people are constipated is because they are deficient in magnesium. And I guess I'm kind of jumping over into your health question, but magnesium deficiency um, is one of the top three American nutrient deficiencies. And magnesium is a mineral that has a number of key roles, one of which is to regulate a lot of muscle contraction and relaxation in the body. And it's not hard to see that if you, if you have uh, suboptimal magnesium, that muscle peristalsis in the, the intestines is not going to work as well as it should. And as a result, magnesium deficiency or just magnesium insufficiency can be a major player in constipation. And, and a lot of people find that just by taking a little bit of extra magnesium citrate, that it nips that constipation in the bud. And, and they don't need medication. They don't need enemas. They don't need anything crazy like that. They just need a nutrient. Um, that, that we're unfortunately getting much less of in our food now because there's much less of it available in the soil. So um, I think that's a really critical um, point to realize, that we're not intended to be constipated. We're intended to take the trash out routinely. And I would uh, recommend, and I know Christina recommends this also, many people do recommend this, is when you're talking about getting rid of the trash, you should also... Since, uh, unlike the trash that you produce in your house and you see what it is, the only time you get to see what you're producing is when you're passing it. And I think it's a good indicator of health and potential illness to actually examine, at least visually, your stools every once in a while. Look for the color, look for the ability for them to float, look for the possibility of blood in them. A number of different things can be... Uh, pre-diagnosed that you might as uh, an active, proactive patient, which we push here at uh, MMT, uh, by looking at your stools, you can pick up something sooner and maybe have a discussion with your doctor if you see something different than what looks normal. In a few minutes left, uh, anything you want to tell us about the health of the gastrointestinal tract, or do you want to give us your health tip for today? Uh, let, let me just, just maybe one tip just to echo something that we talked about last time that I think is really uh, key. Beyond chewing your food, I think one of the healthiest habits that folks can have around mealtime is to not drink too much water during their meals. Uh, in the, we just talked about how critical it is that our stomach acid be very acidic and have a very low pH. And so if you drink too much water during your meal, you're diluting that acid. And it, it's a major cause of acid reflux or excessive belching as a result of a meal, simply because the stomach acid isn't strong enough, because it's been diluted, to really efficiently break down the food and move it on. 
Um, the, it's very important to be hydrated, but it is much more therapeutic to hydrate in between meals and only just have a few sips as necessary during your meal so that your digestive juices, especially in your stomach, can stay nice and strong for good swift digestion and make it a lot more likely that we'll avoid acid reflux or um, indigestion or belching or just the general feeling of fatigue or overfulness after a meal. Excellent. Christina, as the representative of every person on the planet. <laughs> that's a scary thought, Glenn. <laughs> that's <a> scary thought. <laughs> do, you, did, uh, do you feel like you have a little better understanding of the gastrointestinal tract now? That, that was truly uh, has been a fun roller coaster. And during this time, actually, a question did come in. Uh, which is, how can you keep your intestines healthy after a stomach flu? How can you keep your intestines healthy after a stomach flu? Mm. That's a great question. Um, I think when there's, when there's been some type of bug, if you will, um, in the intestines, what usually has happened is people have had a, um, a fair amount of diarrhea, maybe some vomiting. Um, one of the most important things to do is to hydrate. Uh, when, we, when we have diarrhea, what's actually happening is that the, the body is taking out the trash too quickly <laughs> and taking out some, some good nourishment with the trash. And so uh, a lot of um, when we have diarrhea and stool is moving too rapidly, we often are not absorbing enough water from our food, and we also are often losing a lot of nutrition. And so it's very important to be quite hydrated. Uh, I find that uh, for a, maybe a few days afterward, it would be important to try and be gentle on your GI tract. Uh, eating food that has been uh, cooked uh, rather than raw um, and um, food that might be softer, uh, easier, to, um, easier to break down would be just gentler. Uh, on the GI tract, and really trying to avoid anything super rich um, or anything that is um, highly processed. Uh, really trying to remove kind of the wear and tear, if you will, from um, from the GI tract. Your body still needs fiber. In fact, fiber is what's going to help those good beneficial bacteria to surge back up. But um, uh, beyond that, especially if one had to take uh, antibiotics as a result of the stomach flu, uh, I think it's important to maybe take a, uh, for at least a, a couple of weeks a, a probiotic and supplement, which I know we're going to talk about at length in a future uh, episode, but to just try and help to um, calm the immune system in the gut, which has obviously been overwrought. It's been fighting an invader for a while. And we know that uh, the presence of a probiotic can begin to calm down the immune system a bit. Um, but otherwise, sleep is really, really, really vital for healing. So Glenn, do you have any other thoughts to add to that? Those are the things that come to mind for me right off the top of my head. I remember that uh, I want to reiterate the, the concept of dehydration. Most people will get through a stomach flu. And uh, even in places where we've had um, many diseases in other countries and third world countries that cause florid diarrhea and vomiting, the, the thing that people die of is the dehydration. We see in the emergency department uh, little peds or pediatric uh, patients that come in uh, completely dehydrated and all we have to give them is fluids, usually through an intravenous line. So I agree with you on uh, choosing things. I would also say avoid uh, a lot of dairy products, but most, mm. most of the time we should probably avoid a lot of dairy products anyway, but uh, specifically uh, during a flu. We all, some of the things that we used to do would be we would make popsicles for kids that had nutrition in them. We might make a popsicle that had Pedialyte in it, and the kid ah. would take a popsicle. It might cool them down a little if they had a fever, but it's also getting uh, the rehydration. And one of the important things about rehydration is not to be overzealous about it and say, okay, I think I'll drink a, a gallon of water. It's more sips 
that are important to make sure they get in and stay in. So sips of fluid uh, is very important as the way to take that fluid. That was a very good question from our uh, viewer. Christina, any other question? <laughs> so many. <laughs> you know that we're right at the top of our hour now, Glenn. So, and we we have a wonderful tip, of course. Um, what the, the, I do have a question when it comes to I I know that we're going to cover probiotics um, at, an, at another supplement at another um, part episode <laughs> episode that we're going to be doing. Um, but because the immune system, and this is what we heard you say earlier, Tracy, that, uh, you know, the body and the intest, the GI tract is really such a large part of our immune system. Would you, how do we keep that immune system strong? You know, there is all this uh, talk about probiotics. That's why I don't want to get too deep in it. But is there any other ways away from intaking the food that is cleaner, uh, what we would say healthier and not processed, is there any other ways to keep that immune system strong? Um, I, I think there, there are definitely key nutrients that we know uh, affect the immune system directly, uh, in particular vitamin D, which gets a lot of press mm -hmm. uh, these days, not only uh, directly, but also indirectly in terms of uh, controlling um, genetic expression in ways that strengthen or weaken the immune system. So being replete with vitamin D is, is key. Um, to your point, not challenging the immune system with a constant onslaught of non-food. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> food like food-like substances. Um, but I want to mention something, and we could dive into all of those, but I want to mention something that I find people don't think about, and that is stress. Mm. Stress is an immunosuppressant. Uh, when, we are, when we are stressed, we are suppressing our immune system. And, and the body is designed to do that as part of our evolutionary survival mechanism because, you know, a millennia ago, if you needed to run for your life, you didn't really have time to have a cold. Um, you needed the body to prioritize survival. And so... Um, the, the body inherently has evolved to suppress immune function, immune response uh, when we're under stress, which is fine if it's passing stress. But I find so many people make lifestyle choices such that stress is a part of their everyday experience. And, and it's a great example for um, why someone might be uh, undergoing a really big stressful project at work and their body gets them through it. And then the day they're done, they get sick. Mm -hmm. And that's because the body has probably wanted to fight something for quite some time. It has been suppressed from doing it because it's been trying to support your crisis. Um, and, and it's going to take the time to get sick um, afterward in order to fight whatever it, it wants to. And as long as it ebbs and flows, the body is designed to handle stressful episodes. But I think we need to be careful about where we are consciously or unconsciously making the choice to live a very stressful lifestyle. And I think a lot of it is um, more in our control than we think um, in terms of our reaction to life. I think it's huge uh, how important it is to um, make choices to... Um, avoid stress, to manage stress, to do things like exercise and meditate and do yoga and laugh and spend time with friends and really relax so that um, our immune system is more balanced and isn't trying to live in a crisis mode all the time because it's, it's designed to do that. It will try, it will do that, but there will be long-term repercussions for that. Mm. You see, and we just got the second tip of the day. <laughs> I, think, I think the whole tour today of the digestive uh, gastrointestinal tract was a giant tip. And <laughs> we're going to be having uh, two more sessions, episodes with Tracy over the next two months. Uh, I'm grateful to our special guest, Tracy Harrison, for sharing her wisdom and expertise and looking forward to the next two uh, talks. 
I'd also like to thank my healers and uh, my teachers in helping me on my journey. And I look forward to getting together with Christina and the rest of you uh, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy next week. And until that time, I'd like to thank you very much, Tracy, and we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you, Christina. And until our next meeting, I wish you all optimal health. <laughs> thank Thanks, you. Glenn. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's wonderful. And Glenn, <laughs> this was a truly a great, very, very full ride that we took today. And of course, we would like to thank the whole Yoga Up team for making this possible and to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 1.30 Eastern Time, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. You can also contact Dr. Glenn Woolman at glennwoolman.com or follow him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman. When you go to his website, be sure to learn about his metaphor, Square Breath. Until we meet again, namaste. You know, I have to tell you that, uh, and I don't know if I ever said this on MMT before, but I remember in medical school, we were learning the GI tract, and one day uh, we were having a lecture on the liver, and we were talking about the hundreds of different things that the liver does, and you know, one of the things we didn't mention is that when all of those food uh amino acids and proteins and carbohydrates and fats are uh, brought into the bloodstream, they go through the liver. And the liver checks them out and says, okay, this is good. You can go on, go do this, or this is, needs to be detoxified, or this needs to be eliminated. And aside from those things and producing the bile and then working on producing sugar and storing sugar and everything. I remember that at the end of the lecture, which was about an hour and a half lecture on the, on the aspects of the liver, the entire medical school class stood up and gave the liver a standing ovation. <laughs> it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't about great. the, yeah, it wasn't about the lecturer and, and everyone knew that it was, everyone was just, so overwhelmed. I mean, clearly the lecturer gave a great lecture about the liver, but in such a way that we were all just so impressed. It was spontaneous. Everyone for some, and no one ever did this before. We just stood up and started applauding the liver. <laughs> that's great. That's great. That's fantastic. No, that's fun. <laughs> that's fun. Oh, I, I think we, I think, yes, I think a, a full course on, the intestinal tract and how important it is. I, I think that would be so much fun to, to listen to this go, you know, all the different aspects of all the different areas. It's almost like, like you can continue to elaborate on each area so much that we're kind of sitting here waiting for more. <laughs>